Hello, and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, normally your podcast on the IMDb 250. However, today we are doing a special Women in Horror Month episode. I am joined by my co-host, Tyler Hannon. Hello. And my other co-host, Lauren Malisi. Hey. And today we are going to be doing something that's a little bit different for us, but I think we're all pretty excited. It's cool, fun. Uh, We are going to be doing an overview of the career of Karin Kusama an American-Japanese filmmaker who has recently experienced sort of a renaissance as a horror director after a super interesting career. That is a word. (laughs) (laughs) So if you will allow me to take you on this journey, I'm going to give you a brief overview of her career as a whole. We're going to discuss some of the early pitfalls, but the main point of this episode will be to talk about her two horror, and I guess if you really want to get picky horror adjacent films, uh, the 2009 Jennifer's Body and the 2015 The Invitation. So to go back to the beginning, (laughs) (laughs) Karin's first film was released in 2000. It was called Girl Fight, and it is Michelle Rodriguez's first role ever, as far as I know, like at least in a big film. It was the darling of Sundance that year. It won the Grand Jury Prize and... She won the directing award. She is the only person to ever win both of those awards at the festival, but you wouldn't know that based on what happened next. (laughs) So right from the very start, uh, Girl Fight was a struggle to get funded because it heavily- It was a fight. It was a fight. Yeah. Yeah, uh, It is- It is about a young Latina woman who is frustrated in the wake of her mother's death with her father's lack of attention and decides that she is going to take up boxing. And it was very important to Kusama that the character was Latina. And obviously, I don't know if you guys know this, but studios really don't like it when movies aren't with white people. (laughs) So there was- don't say. I know. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to need some heavy documentation to back up this uh, agreement. (laughs) my lawyer. <laughs> but yes, so there was immense pushback right from the start when she was first trying to make this movie to make the lead a white woman. I think the the name she said that got bandied about a lot was Laura Dern, which would be an interesting movie to see Laura Dern boxing, but also mm. why? <laughs> Doesn't need to be Laura Dern. Unless she's boxing dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> so finally, uh, her she was working as a, an assistant to a man named John Sales, who was sort of her mentor and eventually financier. He put up the million dollars for her to make this film the way that she wanted to make it. And like I said, it was the bell of the ball at Sundance. Screen Gems ended up buying it for $3 million, which you would think would be really good, but it ended up kind of, again, being a detriment. So the problem with Girl Fight is that it is a great film, but not a commercial film. So when it finally opened in theaters, it never played more than 253 theaters and it ended up making about 1.6 million, which led to this concept of the Sundance bubble, which is when a studio way overpays for a movie and overestimates how much it will actually sell. And, it's a bummer to me, especially in this case, that for some reason that's counted as a negative against the people who worked on the movie and not the studio. Because <laughs> to me, it seems like you made a mistake. You overestimated. Why is this like her fault <laughs> that you messed up? So you kind of have this couple of weird years where nothing really happens. And in a couple of interviews that she's given, she says that even in like the first afterglow 
success moments of Girl Fight that it was strange because many people would come up to her and be like, aren't you so lucky that this happened to you? As if it was, you know, just a matter of luck and not that she was a talented and visionary filmmaker. (laughs) And I think that that's a problem that we still have today where women's achievements are flukes, you know, viewed as flukes and as sleight of hand, I guess, as opposed to, you know, being smart and talented. So more luck and good fortune than, you know, just making a good movie. Yeah. (laughs) So the, the thing that she said was that she really felt that given comparable male directors had had similar, I guess, if you want to call it a bomb, if it wins all of the awards, a bomb and had still been given, you know, kind of like their blank check next feature where they were allowed to do whatever they want because of, you know, their perspective talent, their perspective career trajectory, whatever, you know, she felt that she had earned the right to have that film. And the film that she wanted to make was a sci-fi movie about a man who through science or magic or whatever, slowly becomes a woman over the course of the movie. And again, early 2000s studios, not hype on that concept for some reason. I don't know that modern studio uh-huh. isn't very hype on it either. It's not a very commercial movie. Exactly. And I think that, and so, uh, and that was the thing that she had said about making Girl Fight was that she wanted to make a movie that had like a normal linear plot because it wasn't what interested her at all. And she wanted to see if she could do it just once. So she kind of gets shut out because of this script with the man turning into a woman. And I think that, I mean, it makes sense. I guess studios have that kind of fear of men losing power and losing, you know, they're like, masculinity i guess also hilariously this is nothing really it doesn't really matter but i think it's funny i guess there was a scene in the script where the guy's balls like literally drop off and roll across the floor and she was like yeah there was a guy that told me it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever read in a screenplay and i just thought that that was absurd (laughs) which fair there are a lot of gross things and a lot of screenplays (laughs) then we get to 2005 Well, I guess probably before 2005, the movie came out in 2005. But we get to the next stage of her career, which should have been awesome and was instead not. And that is the movie Eon Flux. So let me just – Not awesome? So let me just set this up for you guys because I don't – have you seen this movie, Lauren? I have not. I can't recommend it. I've seen the anime. Anime is great. Yeah, so – Here are all of the things that Eon Flux had going for it in production. Based on a cult classic awesome anime with enough wild plot inconsistencies that you could pretty much do whatever you wanted with it. And it would be, you know, as long as it's in the spirit, it would be fine. You have Charlize Theron coming off her Oscar win for Monster. This is her first project post-Oscar. You have... Francis McDormand in a role that I'm assuming was bigger in the original cut of the movie because it really doesn't make sense to have Francis McDormand in that role otherwise. You have a great young screenwriting duo of Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi who had this great cerebral, you know, kind of romance thriller plotted out. And the original person who signed on for this movie, who was in charge of Paramount at the time, was Sherry Lansing. And what she wanted was a movie that could stand up to something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So all in all, this was supposed to be a good movie. <laughs> and holy shit, can I not stress to you enough? It is 
a train wreck. I rewatched it this morning just because it's on Netflix. And I was like, we're doing this episode. I might as well. Because I loved this movie when I was like 13 or 14 <laughs> to the point where I wrote a really badly plagiarized sci-fi novel so that is like mostly Eon Flux, this oh, movie, yeah. with several – you know, Matrix. if we were to do t-shirts, it should be with quotes from that. <laughs> true life. Yes. It's called true life, but spelled badly. T-R-U-U-L-Y-F-E. Oh my God. Yes. There's a, there's a lot going on. It is a masterpiece. Um, yes, we do. So <laughs> sidebar. And so today we are reading that <laughs> for you. We'll come back to that because that is a hilarious sidebar. <laughs> but yes. So I was really into this movie and rewatching it today. And you were wrong. So wrong. It's, it's a gigantic mess. And it, and this is another case where it's not her fault at all. So Karin directed the movie. They shot in Germany. They have these gorgeous, stunning sets, like absolutely incredible, great costuming, and just you know, great talent, obviously. Like, it's really fucking Theron. Like, I don't know what to say. So unfortunately, what happens is Sherry Lansing resigns in the middle of the movie's post-production. And the people that take over, Brad Gray and Gail Berman, hate the movie. They don't want an art movie. They think that it's the worst thing they've ever seen and that nobody will go see it. And so they fired Karin and hired somebody whose name I could not find, probably because they don't want to be involved with this at all, to recut the movie. And they cut it down to 71 minutes. 71 minutes. Which, as you may notice, is not long enough to be a movie. <laughs> I mean, Kayla, it is definitely Aww. long enough to be a movie. It is just probably a bad sign if a movie is ever under 71 minutes. And it is a blockbuster. Yeah. So, and here's the thing too is, okay, so they had originally budgeted the film for $110 million, And then they were like, uh, actually, you're like a girl and this is like a thing. So could you do it for half of that? So she makes this movie that was by all accounts a great movie for $50 million on location in Germany with all of these great sets and costumes and whatever. And then they take it away from her and hack it to pieces. And then to add insult to injury, have the audacity to call her back after they fired her and took her movie away from her and were like, hey, so your version was really shitty because it was like too smart or whatever, but this version is also really shitty. So do you think you could come back and maybe like fix it, but not like how you had it before, just like with this stuff? Oh. <laughs> so what the f Okay. We yes. cut your movie down to 71 minutes. Please add like 19 minutes onto that, but not the stuff that you made. Just yes. like, can you get like some stock footage and so, maybe? So she goes back in and then they have a, they won't let her be alone with the editor. So they have a guy from the studio in the editing room with them to make sure that she's not going to like sabotage it and turn it back into an art movie, I guess, which is like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I it's so bizarre and and I understand that women are treated this way in many industries and even today but it's just so mind-blowingly insane to me that like they were that it was a 50 million dollar movie. Like I don't know. I that just to me especially with how the scale of how blockbusters are made today Seems like fifty million for Paramount is maybe not that big of a risk. So, Kayla, you think it was a bad idea to to make one movie and then try to like form it into a completely different movie, and then when you fail doing that, try to 
I don't know, mishmash into like a third kind yeah, of movie. So, well, so what happens? It's a bad idea. Yes. So what happens is you have ninety <laughs> percent of the plot is just gone, and I, and again, rewatching this it just today. Gets in the way anyway. Well, like I was rewatching it today, and there's so many things that don't make sense. So the premise of this movie is that Eon is like a monacan spy assassin whatever and her mission is to infiltrate the government and kill like the dictator guy trevor goodchild and it there's like this whole convoluted thing about how nobody's a real person they're all clones because the disease killed everybody and nobody could get pregnant so they started cloning everybody and just like putting them back into the gene pool but they all have like for some reason they all have memories from their past lives which is a thing that i directly lifted into my bad sci-fi novel that i wrote when i was 14 uh, by the way i think she lifted it from your novel <laughs> directly is just in there <laughs> and so it turns out that they were in love in their past life and it, it's a thing that we're like given enough time that totally would make sense and be a good story but when you have nothing to establish it and whatever it's just it's an absolute train wreck and like there are so many good examples of just like clear slapdash like reshoots and edits and all of this stuff and it's just it's such a shame because i i remember when i i watched this movie first and then i watched the anime and I had no idea that they were completely different. So when I was watching the movie, even as like a 13, 14 year old, I could tell that there was stuff missing. And I remember being like, oh, I bet that this is expanded on. Movies are just missing stuff sometimes. Yeah. Well, no. Well, I thought I was like, obviously, this is an adaptation of a TV show. And I like in my head, I had like an outline of like what the episodes would be like. Okay. Ian breaks into the thing. Ian and Trevor meet like all this stuff. Yeah. Because and then, she stole this movie from you. It was your idea. That's why you knew well, everything. And then in the TV series, the TV series has nothing to do with it. It's just like some future dystopian like BDSM stuff. And she dies in every episode. So. Oh, that wasn't not- the first thing that you described. Oh, no. That's way different. Yeah. So. It's a disaster. It made fifty two point three million worldwide, and she was put in movie jail, which sucks. So we get to 2007 and she is given the script for Diablo Cody's follow-up movie to Juno. And again, this is another case where by all accounts, everything should have gone great. You have a person following up an Oscar victory. Yes. So you have Diablo Cody who just won the Oscar for best screenplay. You have Megan Fox who, despite how people were starting to feel about her is hot as shit and coming off of Transformers franchise. And you have Amanda Seyfried who's like, People are starting to trust her as an actress, maybe not as a leading actress, but, you know, she works. This was supposed to be a movie for teenage girls. And watching it without any bias, I think that that is clear. And I think that if you look at the marketing at the time, that is not clear at all. (laughs) So let's do my favorite game, which is first impressions of movies. (laughs) Lauren, uh, had you seen this movie before we were going to do it for the podcast? So I put off. So I, I so my, all of my I have I own this on DVD somewhere. I never watched it. I have all my life. I've just seen scenes from the movie. 
Um, and so I've seen the movie out of order. So when I watched it last week, and then I watched it, so I watched it twice. Uh, I was like, oh, this is not how the internet has been telling me this movie is supposed to go at all. And um, it was really marketed as like a, like the whole hell yes thing. And she's like posed like really sexy, like on the dresser, like for, for a bisexual, like 13 year old Lauren, like, yes, thank you, Jesus. Um, but like, but then when I look back at that, I'm like, oh, no, no, this was marketed as like totally like, yes, men, like, please watch this movie. And part and like so it yeah I don't so I don't know why I put off watching it for so long but guys love tweeting about how much they hate this movie because they thought it was just gonna be like you know like a slasher like with her like like being half naked and just killing people but it actually has a plot and people have feelings and it's also in the movie. mostly about how boys um, suck. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so first watch, I was like, oh, like, I don't know if I love this. And then second watch, I was like, wow, I want to become <laughs> Jennifer Check. I want to be her. I want her wardrobe. I want her bedroom yeah. minus the follow up boy poster. Um, I want I want all of it. So, yeah, I don't, my only issue is clearly Diablo Cody wrote that off of her Juno fame. <laughs> clearly, Honest to the dialogue, the dialogue is unbearable. It is unbearable dialogue. Uh, my favorite weird dialogue was the fact that the word salty has now become like a thing. So when she's like, yeah. oh, he's so salty, but she means sexy. I'm like, yeah. so Diablo Cody was just super wrong about that. Way to go. You were <laughs> almost yeah. ahead of the curve, but completely wrong still. Lesbigay, tampooning. There are a lot of things in that movie that I'm like, Diablo Cody really wants it to sound like teenagers talk. Like, I think Diablo Cody has an idea of how she wishes teenagers talked or how yeah. she wishes she talked when she was a teenager. And that's kind of like she runs with it. Or is it supposed to be an intentionally heightened form of reality, man? A true, maybe. Uh, no, like no, Tyler shit. Hannon. <laughs> Tyler Hannon is wrong. Um, no, it's, it's, part of part of no part of what made juno so big was like it was so quotable um and but the thing is like those quotes were not shoved in our face in every single scene um people spoke normally in scenes <laughs> and then we had something weird like you know when juno like calls her like best friend and she goes fuga thailand because like instead of saying like fuck and i'm like and at the time i was like oh my god that's so great i'm gonna put that in like everything i say all the time or like her calling that chick who smells like soup soupy sales like thank you bless you <laughs> but like but like tampooning or like or like or she was like she was like she was like, smells like thai food in here have you guys been fucking like what what <laughs> i always think of like, that when thai food lauren i just think God. right now <laughs> i'm what you're green like jello you are better. I'm lime green. I'm lime green jello. Oh my god. I am so sorry. Yeah, I think Diablo Cody's biggest issue yeah. as a writer is that she just really wants to create like a saying. <laughs> she just like can't get it right. <laughs> but yeah. Um, Tyler, you had mentioned that your opinion has changed drastically on this movie, so I'm really excited to hear your first impression oh, of this. So you'll be shocked to hear that when I was a 19-year-old boy who saw this movie in theaters, uh I acted like every other 19-year-old boy who saw this movie in theaters and thought that was dumb. Really hated it. Not enough boobs. It was a terrible movie, and they obviously just put the lesbian kiss in the middle just to keep viewers' attention. It was like an actual quote funny. from me way back when. <laughs> uh, so nobody should ever listen to me ever again. I'm clearly an idiot. Even then, I might have liked it more, but I was so upset that I had gotten voted down on seeing Zombieland and that we ended up seeing Jennifer's <laughs> instead. 
Listen, I also feel like it's necessary to point out that it is entirely likely that Tyler had already seen Zombieland like 15 times by that I, time. I had seen Zombieland already. <laughs> and that's why I was so mad. I'm like, course. guys, this movie is incredible. Why are we going to go see this other thing? And so I'm just like sitting there with my, like, uh, like one of my guy friends next to me and Jennifer's body just like, this is so dumb. We could be watching. I'm just gonna try to go to sleep. I'm just gonna try to go to sleep. I like this movie so dumb. I'm just gonna try to go to sleep. I paid money to see it, and then I spent much of my life maybe not being the most strident about it, but just believing it was a terrible movie. And then I, I don't know. I got like, I became slightly less shitty as a person, just like slightly, just like a little bit. People should still never listen to anything I say, (laughs) but like I, I I lived on the internet and started seeing the uh, kind of a reclamation of this movie. I started uh, appreciating other weird movies. I saw The Invitation, which was incredible. And yeah, I just slowly over time realized that I was probably full of it, especially as I realized more and more Mm -hmm. how many of my opinions, like especially pre-21, were just garbage. This is the first time watching it since then. And I realized, you know what? I was right. I was garbage that time. <laughs> and, well, and to be fair, to be fair, you were marketed a product which you were not given. So like, that is a big part of the issue. Um, and I remember there was like, I really liked Juno too. So I wasn't even primed mm-hmm. for Juno backlash, but I remember it at the time, the Juno backlash and the Megan Fox hate was, was very real. And that's, uh, yeah, <clears throat> this movie is really weird because it is again, a movie that I think if they had just marketed it to the people it was meant for would have done totally fine or even if it had come unfortunately if it had come out a few years later i feel especially Mm -hmm. with the internet as it has evolved there would have been a much more vocal fan base for it so it still might not have succeeded but it wouldn't have had to wait years and years to uh have some sort of to become a reclamation project literally just swap that aquamarine reference for lizzie mcguire and you're good to go yeah i mean (laughs) salty and green jello still works With like that year when uh or no maybe it was the next year when Amanda Seyfried was on like, the MTV Movie Awards and she was like I was in a movie called Jennifer's Body that not a lot of people saw like while she was like introducing like a category Ooh. for an award I was like who the fuck told her to say that somebody who uh, that's was a mad. pretty good joke that's a pretty funny <laughs> I have an insane quote from Amanda Seyfried that I'll read you in a minute but okay well what was your first impression of the movie okay I'm upset. Still to this day, because I about many things. So this was the first movie that I really am aware of having been excited about, like way before its release. Like that, I had followed the writer's career and was ready for their next project. Like this was as I was starting to kind of become a film person, and Juno was like this huge deal for me. I think I watched Juno a thousand times the year it came out. I had the soundtrack and all this stuff. And it was your Zombieland. Yeah, and so and based on like some pre 
some pre-stuff, like pre some pre-stuff, based on yep. some pre-marketing, <laughs> Jennifer's Body seemed like it was the movie for me. And it's so upsetting because it was, it really was. I was, let's see, this came out in 2009. <laughs> I was, I think I had just turned 17. I was either 16 or 17 when this came out. The soundtrack came out on Fueled by Ramen. It featured- Oh, yes, it, it fucking did. It featured a brand new song by Panic at the Disco and a previously unreleased solo acoustic demo by Haley Williams. Who you're a fan of. I lost bit. my shit when that when they announced that that was going to be on there. All Time Low is on this soundtrack. Fucking, I think the Detroit Love on her. Oh, I was 15. Yeah. What the fuck? I, I was way younger than that. Okay. I was 15, everybody. Sorry. I was like, I didn't think yeah. you were that much younger than me, but maybe I was like deeply no, wrong. And But yeah, so this movie had – everything that I thought I could have ever wanted. The soundtrack was literally ripped from my teenage diary playlists, like insane. Uh And I remember I went and saw this in theaters with my high school boyfriend and I was super hype. And how all great stories start. This is literally how like 90% of every movie I watched before I turned 21. That's how the story starts is I watched it with Trent, but it's cool. Um, (laughs) Trent. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the Daria character right now, and that's I'm imagining you sitting next to like Trent from. Daria. I thought of the crazy ex girlfriend character, which oh my God. I don't want. No, that. it's it's. I should. It's not flattering. <laughs> no, Trent is good. Yeah, no, Trent is good. <laughs> so throw that out there because like, he might listen to this if he has internet connection and top ten. Hi, Trent. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I remember I felt really bad because like the movie ended and he was turns to me and he's like, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. And I was like, Oh no. <laughs> Cause I really liked it. I thought it was good. I was like, there are parts of it that were ridiculous, but like, and so I was like, yeah, so bad. Definitely hated it. And like, I just, I don't know. So I just had, and, and like, this is when I was a teenager, I was, uh, I only hung out with boys that thought their opinions were super important. And so I, Kind of absorbed. As I joked earlier, that has not changed. <laughs> Except now I voice my own opinions instead of just being like, yeah, cool. I guess that was really bad, even though it was hot. <laughs> like, you know. But yeah. So um wait, that's what you really thought of my book? My book. No, <laughs> I wrote the book. No, anyway. Um, but yeah, so on this rewatch, I was pleasantly surprised to find out that I was right and it is in fact a good movie because I hadn't rewatched it. Because at what nobody what you can't be like, hey guys, let's watch Jennifer's body. So it turns body. out as a teenager, you were a smart and canny person who had a sense of style, and I was just like a pile of garbage. I literally could have been a Diablo Cody. <laughs> um, but yeah, so rewatching the other day, I was like, this is legitimately hilarious. Even the lines, even the lines it that is. don't really work are still funny. Um, I think what was, hold on, I wrote one down. My favorite was when they're in the bar and Jennifer's like, Look at these morsels. <laughs> They're like smart bombs. We have all the power. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, yeah, she's not wrong. <laughs> like, that's a smart observation uh-huh. to get free shit from shitty dudes. <laughs> I'm surprised I've never heard you say, this is my rock look. <laughs> I also was super related to that as like a 15-year-old who desperately wanted to be goth but could not make it work at all no matter what and how hard I tried. <laughs> like. I had a very I had a very late stage golf phase as in like three years ago. Yeah, but you like looked good and knew how to do makeup. Mine was like I dyed my hair black with writ and like wore. I tried to get myself bangs. My eyebrows. 
My eyebrows were in the middle of my forehead, Kayla. <laughs> my favorite thing you've ever posted was the time you were like, if I can get guys when I had eyebrows like these, you can do anything or something like that. Anything is possible. I shaved my eyebrows off and drew them on with liquid eyeliner and I almost broke up a certain band from Illinois that took their name from a Simpsons character. Um, like I guess I broke I guess that would have been their second time breaking up i almost did that with my with my eyebrows drawn on my face so honestly i wish you had do all things i wish you had broken them off with your eyebrows i sort of wish i would have i have no idea who this is about we'll tell you later off mike (laughs) (laughs) if lauren wants to she doesn't have to but oh it's 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 a great terrible awful story (laughs) but yes that incredible anecdote aside Yeah, and like just watching this movie, there are so many things that I felt were specifically for me. There's the hilarious, like Chip and Needy's sex scene is so painfully reminiscent of many high school sexual escapades that I've had. And like, I also, a thing that I appreciate about her character is that she's interested in sex. But like, she also doesn't really care at all. She's like, okay, whatever, I guess we're doing this now. Yeah, and she's like, she's like, the one, oh my god, when she's like, she's like, for, when it cuts back to them and they're just like, the way she's laying on him and he just opens the condom, I'm like, wait, you're just laying there naked, you haven't done anything yet? Like, <laughs> what am I watching? She has, like, the funniest like smile on her face too. It almost reminds me of the sex scene in Amelie where she's just like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like it's a similar feeling where she's like, oh my god, all right, cool, what's happening? Um, I also love that scene because there is a promotional poster for the Motion City. Sound soundtrack album even if it kills me in the background and it's my oh, favorite my motion city soundtrack album i saw it and oh i was like man God. you don't understand this but that's so cool <laughs> just how a lot of Fine. band references go with ben tv <laughs> 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 uh but yes so oh wait <laughs> i'm just waiting for you to <laughs> I'm fine. He says he completely breaks down again. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm super good. So I'm glad that we all have kind of come to the consensus that this is, in fact, a good movie. Like, I'm not going to go out and be like, this is the best movie ever made, but it's fun. I think it's very smart. And I think it has this really great portrayal of a teenage friendship that I think, I mean, in my opinion, I think that their friendship before she was possessed by a demon and turned into a succubus was healthy and good. It feels to me like they have a very true and kind friendship and that they like, and that, I mean, all friendships have that kind of level of like slight insecurity and slight you know, jealousy or whatever. Like it would be really weird if they were just like sunshine and flowers Especially all as the teenagers. time. No teenager with sunshine and flowers all the time. Yes. And so I think that like, that was the other problem that people like they didn't pick up on that in the movie. They were like, oh, Jennifer is a bitch to needy all the time. But Jennifer is like not really there <laughs> after the rest yeah, of the movie. Yeah. And I read a really interesting theory about how the only reason that sometimes Jennifer shines through, like her actual character shines through to talk to her friend is because of the BFF necklace and that like needy was kind of keeping that piece of her soul in her body the power of their friendship yeah held no, her together yes and that like at the end when they have their kind of final confrontation and she rips off the necklace like that's what takes the power out of her that's what you know lets that bit of jennifer go so that she can finally actually kill you know the demon that has taken up residence in her body and so i think that we have this really great story about you know how female friendship can become toxic if you 
are, you know, spending too much time envying each other or, you know, not communicating. But I also think it's a really great story about loss and grief because I think that in a way, Needy knows right off the bat that her friend is gone. And I think tries to convince herself that that's not true. And so we kind of see her go through these stages of grief where, you know, she has to accept that her friend is gone and whatever is living in her friend's body is evil and is going to murder every boy in their town. And it's just really sad Aww. when Chip dies, you know? It's really... <laughs> Poor Chip. Like, I don't really care about Chip. Oh, I wasn't sad. Like, Chip is fine, but also, like, kind of shut the fuck up, Chip. Yeah, I know. But also, like, in typical dude reaction to this movie fashion... The two things I remember thinking were the lesbian kiss was for our attention. And like, it's so dumb that Chip had to die. Like, why did the book, why did Chip have to die? I'm just now, like, of course he died. He was fucking of course he died. It makes perfect sense. Young yeah. Neil couldn't survive that. <laughs> you are now Neil. I've, they made every dude so dopey, like on purpose, I feel like. And so when they died, I was like, yeah, now I have to, I have to look at Kyle Garner and fucking <laughs> I mean, eyeliner. Chip anymore. Is like, perfectly, like, like fine or whatever but i think it's very clear that uh needy is not actually that into him he's just a nice guy yeah, yeah for sure and you're supposed to date a nice well guy. and so here's the thing as i'm pretty sure needy is actually super quote lesbian gay uh, needy's gay obviously yeah like, like maybe bisexual <laughs> but yeah. so and so that's like another thing that um the the kiss is much maligned like i think aside from the fact that this movie exists that's the thing that you hear about the most. Yeah, I thought it came from nowhere rewatching. It does not. No, and I think that, <laughs> again, this is a failure of marketing. If this, like, as a teenage girl, I understood that. And Diablo Cody had this really great thing where she was talking about how she didn't do it for promotional purposes at all. She had had many friendships in her life that, you know, take on that kind of weird will we, won't we romantic edge. And as a woman, I uh-huh. totally understand that. I have so many friends that I would make out with, like, given half a chance (laughs) like it's just very i don't know because like when you are interested in women it is half romantic interest but also half i don't to me at least like it's half you know wanting to emulate them wanting to be close to them wanting to have like a connection with them and that when you're a teenager that's like all you Mm -hmm. give a shit about is you know talking to your friends all night and doing all this stuff and like i think diablo cody was like yeah you know like you want to wear their clothes and sleep in their bed and i'm like yeah that makes Uh perfect sense to me and i think that it's so weird that it was this whole like I, i don't know it's so wild to me because i guess 2009 doesn't seem like that long ago but in terms of like progress on homophobia it really is i guess because there was this uh-huh. like insane quote where <laughs> megan fox like kind of threw amanda seyfried under the bus and was like yeah she hated it and was super weird about it i don't know man i thought it was fine <laughs> and she was and then amanda was like uh-huh. no we both totally thought it was just for promotional purposes megan fox is quoted as saying that she felt most comfortable kissing amanda because she felt safe mm-hmm. kissing a woman whereas i mean i don't know she was in transformer she probably had to kiss shia labeouf and uh, probably michael bay in an environment where you're working with a female writer, a female director, and a female co-star, I don't see what's to be uncomfortable. But apparently Amanda Seyfried is either uber straight or uber in the closet and was giggling and freaking out the whole time and eventually said something ridiculous like, it's just that it was super uncomfortable because the pheromones are off. It's like floral and silky or something and she was like you know it just it was uncomfortable and maybe it just made me feel a little wrong and i'm like 
it's cool if you're not comfortable because you're straight, but can you imagine saying that in a press interview like today? Yeah. Especially to speak it so clumsily. Yeah, because like I there's there is room to have a discussion about being uncomfortable with kissing a woman for the first time on camera or all of the stuff to be like, I don't know, the pheromones were off and she was just like a gross flower and I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to make out with a flower. I feel like I would sneeze. But yeah, so this is I keep yeah, I don't know. I well, really and you know, Kayla, as a teenage boy at the time, I was definitely the exact wrong person to watch that movie. <laughs> I just I, this is a movie that I really wish had done well initially, and I'm glad that it's having this resurgence as kind of a cult thing, I guess, because it's very rare that movies are for specifically young girls, I think. And we're sort of getting away from that now. But I'm like when I'm when I think of another movie that came out around this time that actually tried to be for teenagers, the only one I can think of is Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And it kind of had that same like hip soundtrack and like cool young stars hot off of other projects. I think that was maybe Michael Sarah's like first after Juno thing. I think that with teenage girls, they make up such a significant portion of the market, but nobody wants to admit it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like, just let them have stuff. Like this movie, if you had marketed it to- Fangirls. My, yeah, fangirls. Fucking mm -hmm. Panic at the Disco. That 2008, 2009, that was the height of mm -hmm. Panic at the Disco speculation. All you had to do was tell them that that song was about Raiden. Going off of that, Fuel by Ramen also did the soundtrack for A Snakes on a Plane. Oh, that's and right. yeah, and we had that awesome song with like um uh, with like Travis McCoy and like William Beckett and like and it's like really not it on um, Cobra Starship and like why can't why don't more horror movies have like pop punk emo soundtracks? You know, that's what I wanted. This is one of the, the those couple of movies that came out like in this time frame that had those sorts of soundtracks. Remind me that there was legitimately a pop culture moment where our quote unquote scene was like mm -hmm. the popular thing, and that is so fucking weird to me. <laughs> Isn't that weird as fuck? Because like if you think about it, it's like okay, so in that time frame, you have this movie with the soundtrack on Field by Ramen, Cobra Starship getting a song on a Samuel L. Jackson movie. You have Pete Wentz on the OC. On the OC. Still yep. no, 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 oh, no, 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 One Tree Hill, One Tree Hill. Yes. <laughs> Although the OC was, you know, tastemakers for music. The yeah, the OC has That's a Fantasy Planet song as the theme song. Like, oh. there was really a hot minute there <laughs> where – when Taking Back Sunday was on Degrassi to, yes. to promote, like, make damn sure and shit. Yeah. It's so I'm wild. Half of this. I'm having, okay. So, yeah. Um, no, no, that's not a bad thing. As I made, as I made clear, oh, I got 0% of actually, Jennifer's body at the time. So. Do you know what the most insane part about the Jennifer's body soundtrack is? There's a Florence and the Machine song on it. 
Yes, that that <laughs> I that I saw when I was looking it up, and I was like, "Where does Florence fit in here?" And it it is. It's like one of those songs where I remember because I listened to it, and I was like, "This is dope." And then I listened to the album, and I was like, "This is not pop punk. I don't understand it." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> at the time, I only listened to pop punk and bad Hot Topic, like screamo metalcore. <laughs> so yeah, okay. I could, I, yeah, that's a my God, very familiar. Yeah. Good. No, we, we haven't really even talked about the horror element of, of it, though. Yeah. Which it, it deserves to be redeemed not only because of, you know, its themes and exploring female friendship, but also it's a pretty fun horror movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll especially rewatching The Invitation 2. Uh, Invitation 2 coming soon. Um, <laughs> Karakusama <laughs> is really good at sudden bursts of violence, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the moment when. Needy kicks the orderly to start the movie. Um, just, it was a much yeah. more violent kick than I expected. Mm-hmm. Some of the moments where Jennifer is lunging at dudes or eating them up, even in, we'll get to it later, the invitation, there are moments in there that are tremendous, jarring and upsetting and not in jump scare ways. They're just, uh, she's really good at uh, capturing a tremendous physicality mm-hmm. to the violence, which is very jarring. It's because she's very conscious of violence. Um, I was listening to a podcast earlier where she was talking about how she doesn't want gratuitous violence in her movies, but she feels that there is an artistic aspect of violence in film that as long mm-hmm. as you're being conscious and depicting it, you know, in an artistic way and not a gratuitous way can be done effectively. And I think Jennifer's body is probably one of her, you know, obviously her first experiments with that. And another thing that on the horror aspect that I noticed is there are a lot of clever misdirects when it comes to jump scares or about to be jump scares. The one that stuck out to me in particular um, is when Needy is walking around her empty house and it's right before Jennifer shows up and she opens the closet door and it pauses on her with the closet door so that those are the only two things in the frame. And I couldn't remember. And I really thought she was going to close the door and that Jennifer was going to be standing right there, That old trick. but nothing happens. And then she shows up in the kitchen and aside from like, it's a and, very, and when Jennifer, sorry to interrupt, but like also when Jennifer shows up, she does that a lot. The very first guy she kills the high school quarterback like when she's approaching him, he sees her coming off in the distance and then she approaches from the other side. She's always getting the drop on people in that mm-hmm. same way. And I think she's really, uh, Kusama is really canny uh, with her staging. And it's more showy here than it is in The Invitation, but it shows up in The Invitation too. Yeah, and I think that um, aside from, like this movie is super funny, but there are a lot of genuinely upsetting moments in this movie. Like the, the When two- the bar burns down? Mm, the back, the back break. Yeah. You're the squish of the, flesh. The two that really stick out to me is when the band, which we have not even talked about yet, is Adam Brody's douchebag band. But um, Because it's too real. It, it is, actually. But so they, they hustle Jennifer, who they've bewitched, basically, or drugged maybe even, into the van. And you see the door shuts between her and needy before needy can do anything. And as they're kind of driving along, Jennifer starts to sort of wake up and there's just this look of intense fear that passes over her face where you can see that she's realizing that she is probably going to die like at the hands of these men. And to me, like that was the most real moment in the movie because Jennifer, again, I think is essentially a good person. She's a bitchy teenager, but every teenage girl is bitchy. Like she is scared and she, you know, she had plans for her future. She had friends, she had a life and they took it away from her. And it's so sad. And then the other like really unsettling moment is when she does come back and she spews out all of this black stuff 
and then stares at Needy with this grin. Red and black. It's like a full minute, and it is so scary. Megan Fox has the greatest scary grin. (laughs) Like It really (laughs) threw me for a loop. I wasn't really expecting it. Yeah, Karen Kusama. Good stuff. (laughs) Do we have final thoughts on Jennifer's body? I think the best line in the whole movie is, hell is a teenage girl. Yes. J.K. Simmons hair. Oh my god. J.K. Simmons everything. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. That dude glowed up so much. It, was that fucking Chris Pratt? Yeah, yes. it was. What the <laughs> fuck? What the like? Okay, okay. So that I'm trying. Then well, Needy's mom is Amy Sedaris, which is also hilarious. That, yeah, she gets like one line to say she's a hard ass for tough mama bear. Uh, my favorite line is, ow, my tit. And then Needy says, no, That's your heart. It's super creepy and terrible, but even the things Adam Brody is saying, like, I think that's why I do think maybe Diablo Cody is trying too hard. But I, I think that's part of the reason there was a backlash against her is people thinking she's trying too hard. But I do think this is supposed like either it is supposed to be a heightened reality or Kusama recognized that it should be a heightened reality. I loved when he's like, he comes over with this whiskey and he's like, oh man, I've been looking for you guys everywhere. And I was like, I know that you just burned down a bar and are evil, but also I feel like a band guy has said that to me in that exact tone. No, it's too real. There are definitely indie bands that did blood sacrifices. Oh Lord, yeah. I just, rewatching those scenes now, having been in the music industry in the capacity that I have, I'm just like, oh. Yes, can match you up with several men. <laughs> the three percent profits with the charity song. Oh my god! That's something we haven't we talked about. Okay, like we the- do have to mention the fucking song for like one second. And I sing the broken glass in front of me. I sing your shadow. The most blithe, it is so bland. good because it's like the exact right amount of blithe and band, but oh like just catchy mm. enough that uh, I really buy that this song like would become it. like yeah. it would become a radio hit, and you kind of hate yourself for liking it, but you know every word. Yeah, and that it it is not a deep element of this movie, but it is another way the movie was kind of ahead of its time in certain ways. The kind of tragedy porn elements of it, mm-hmm. and the way the band takes advantage of that mm-hmm. is very real can we can we go can we end this with just the most iconic exchange like from the film please i thought you only murder boys i go both ways <laughs> best way to come out ever it's like on the nose but very perfect i love it I, I love this movie that's, that's, that's the thing it's like it's supposed to be kind of outrageous mm-hmm. i'm pretty excited to add this into our halloween rotation next year i think it's probably a good time to rewatch it is then obviously you hit me once i hit you back you gave a kick i gave a slap you smashed the plate over my head then i said fire to our bed oh, 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 my black 
Jennifer's body made $31 million worldwide, uh, meaning it flopped on Forge. On Forge. <laughs> so uh, with this latest, I guess, set, I, I'm going to call it a setback and not a failure because I don't consider it to be a failure. With this latest setback under her belt, Karen decided that it was maybe time to just take a break <laughs> because – because she did not fail the industry and the audience failed her. Exactly. So you have these studios who are like, we let you out of movie jail for this. And she's like, well, you didn't market the movie correctly. And you put the, you made the poster a sexy teenage girl, which is a whole other conversation well, that we could have. She's clearly very difficult to work with. Yeah. Fucking, yeah. So she takes a step back. She decides to focus on her family and, um, she is – oh, she's married to Phil Hay, by the way. They met on the set of Yenflux, obviously, and ended up getting married, which is great for them. Congrats. Something great came out of it. And, yeah, that's like the one good thing that came out of Yenflux. They have a son, and that was pretty much the only directing work that she did between Jennifer's body and then I think like 2010 or 2012. She directed one episode of The L Word while she was pregnant with her son. Because then um, – so she had these studios who were like, we don't think you can make a movie – and then she had TV people who were like, well, you've only ever worked on a movie. So I don't know if you can work on something that has this kind of schedule or like whatever. So it's like really like super damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of Honestly, thing this is kind of perfect because that Brett Easton Ellis quote just got circulated recently. Oh, I have that. I have that. I have that fucking his interview about how much he hates female directors. I have that up the whole thing. I was planning on throwing that out at the end because I want to bury him. Do you want to know what's super weird actually though? Apparently he was on a podcast with Karin Kusama where he retracted like that entire interview in front of her. And I'm like, so I'm wondering, I hate Brad Stanellas. I have a blood oath vendetta against him. And I'm curious if he actually feels that way or if coming face to face with such an intelligent and competent woman, he couldn't bear to like try to back those opinions up in front of her. I, 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 uh, I have my suspicions. Yeah, I hate him. (laughs) I'm sorry. I straight up hate him. He's a misogynist asshole, and he had the gall to insult David Foster Wallace as an author when he is literally the biggest hack job writer I've ever seen in my life. So, so when Mary made his freaking movie, that is one of the the movie American Psycho is good. The book made me so nauseous that it's one of the few things I've ever actually regretted finishing reading. I hate that book. It is so violently upsetting. I cannot. Have you read it? No. It's horrible. <laughs> do not recommend. I did not plan on it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to say, despite all the things that have tempted me over the years to, you know, pick up a, the Brad Easton Ellis bibliography and just, you know, pour through it. I just haven't gotten around to doing it for some reason. I hate him. <laughs> yeah, so Karin, Karin Kazama, who but the podcast is about. But have podcast? That's the thing. Like, God, I, I can't believe like, <sighs> Of course he has a podcast. Of course it's like a successful podcast, too. Quote, I think it's a medium that really is built for the male gaze and for male sensibility. Like, go fucking die. Like, what the fuck? Like, really? Based on what? This is absolutely... Based on what? See, all the great movies were made by men. I mean, sure, it was technically because they didn't let mo- women make movies. This is like but- the insane thing whenever quotes like this come up to me is that men say shit like this because they legitimately think that everybody has the same opportunities as them and that... They, they just are think leg- it's true. They're like, obviously, no. They're like, they just don't want to do it. <laughs> and so, and this is actually oh another... God, that's the... Ch- <laughs> Like that is something like directors even to this day still say is like, I just don't think women want to make blockbusters. Well, and so here's the thing is that 
Karin actually spoke about this because somebody asked her, you know, like people have this perception that women can't or don't want to make these blockbusters. And she said, it's not that I don't want to. It's just I've already put myself through this twice and had my vision taken away from me and had my final product horribly mismanaged. So you're saying you don't want to be treated like garbage? Yeah. She was like, why would I want to work on this if all that's going to happen is I'm going to have to fight every step of the way to realize my vision? That's absurd. Nobody would ever ask a man to do that. And that's what it really comes down to. And I think that it's totally fair. So she started doing these like dinners with other, you know, I guess, quote unquote, smaller directors like Eli Roth and Joe Swanberg just to, you know, talk with them and get a sense of their artistic sensibilities because she felt that directing is the loneliest job after having these, you know, experiences where every single thing that could have gone wrong (laughs) went wrong. And it's so weird for me because I feel like Karin Kusama is a director that I identified with and wanted to succeed before I even knew who she was. Because when Invitation started getting buzz and this name started popping up all over, I there was this really great uh, BuzzFeed kind of profile retrospect um, that I'll have Tyler link in the show notes that pointed out all these movies. And I was like, holy fuck, Ian Fox, Jennifer's Body is the same director as this? Like, <laughs> it, was, it was like kind of a... a, a to be dramatic, like a light from above, like a or not like a, a light, light bulb moment. Like a light bulb moment. Yeah, where I was like, oh my God, it totally makes sense why I liked these movies. Like, I get it now. Like, this is a competent, good artist who is just having the shit kicked out of her by the studio system. It's like when I found out David Diggs was the dude from clipping and Hamilton. And the Zell commercial. That I you'll have to show me that. And like It's a new me. payment app. <laughs> He does rapping in the commercial. He's on the Snowpiercer TV show. <laughs> anyway, so the invitation. <laughs> That's a really great, flawless transition. Came out in 2015, starring Logan Marshall Green, Tammy Blanchard, and Mikhail Huisman. Definitely Googled how to say that before the podcast. I, Don't. I thought it was worry. Michael Huisman. Nope, it's Mikhail. Mikhail? <laughs> Dutch. I thought I was. Yeah, no. Mikhail <laughs> Huisman. <laughs> Well, Mikkel is a ger- is the ger- yeah, would be yeah, the German yeah. way of saying that. For sure. Yeah. Um, Mikey. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mikey Hughes is what we'll call him from now on. And let's not. <laughs> Hashtag Mikey Hughes. <laughs> Cal from. <laughs> Cal from Orphan Black, anyways. So um, nice star of The Age of Adeline with Blake Lively. <laughs> okay. been acting so suspicious of our hospitality. This beautiful moment is upon us. Tonight is the night our faith is made real. Something doesn't feel safe here. The Invitation was written by, again, Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. They initially wanted to make this their directorial debut, but decided, well, Karin was drawn to the project and really, you know, wanted to work on it, but obviously didn't want to overstep or ask because she didn't want to take that away from them. But as they, you know, worked on the script, they realized that it would be better served in the hands of somebody who knew what they were doing. And also she's an incredible director and, you know, kind of was this great chance for her. So um, there was no studio 
no marketing really. It ended up going to Netflix, I think directly from um, no, no. South by Southwest. No. Did it play in theaters? It was on VOD. VOD. And like okay. had a limited theatrical release, but okay, like, okay, I, okay. I watched it like as soon as it was released okay. on VOD. All right, cool. That's good to know. But it's available on Netflix for you to watch it now. Is, it is now, yeah. It had a $1 million budget that was provided by an equity fund called Game Changer Films that was created in 2013 to specifically fund female filmmakers, which is super cool. And I definitely want to look into that more and maybe, you know, we could, if they have like a roster, maybe we could do something with that. That would be super cool. Yeah, maybe I have, I have a script. You think they've, oh man. (laughs) No. (laughs) How can we get Karen Kusama on this podcast? I don't think, I don't think I'm smart enough to talk to her. I need to upgrade my recording (laughs) setup before we do that. Um, I would love to talk to her because I, again, I think that her career is so tragically fascinating and, that's mm-hmm. I'm so glad to see that turn around. So and this is so this is what happens with the invitation is that it premieres at the 2015 South by Southwest Film Festival portion of South by Southwest. Yep, that's what they call it. <laughs> yep, that's what it's called. Um, We're there in the film portion. It opens to rave reviews. Uh, basically, turns her entire career around overnight. And again, I feel like they're probably was a sense of wariness even then because I mean, girl fight open to rapturous reviews and then everybody was like, yeah, this movie is wild to briefly yes. give an overview of the plot. It is about uh, a dinner party, a an dinner invitation, kind of an invitation to a dinner party. So uh, a bunch of friends getting together <laughs> after, you know, just Heather, stop. <laughs> um, a man uh, is going domestic drama. Oh my God. Stop. <laughs> okay, a man is going with his new girlfriend to. Why a, isn't the girlfriend going with? Oh my god! <laughs> to a dinner party thrown by his ex-wife and her new boyfriend. Um, nobody and there's going to be a bunch of their old couple friends there and people that they met in their grief support group from when their son died. Womp. <laughs> yeah, nobody has heard from the the wife played by uh, her name is Eden, played by Tammy Blanchard. Um, nobody has heard from her in two years. And so this is kind of coming out of the blue for all of them. And it's one of those master class of mood building, because obviously if you're going to see your wife who you divorced because your son died and you guys were too sad to stay together, it's going to be awkward, especially when she has a new boyfriend, you're seeing all of your friends for the first time in a long time. And then you find out that she maybe joined a cult. <laughs> I was in one of those ones. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, really? Oh it's also really like, oh my god, they're yeah. in a cult. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh my god, I want to hear about that later. <laughs> Off mic. <laughs> if you okay. feel so inclined. Okay. But, um, Put in the paper. <laughs> Lauren, the time I joined a cult. <laughs> like her new episode. Literally every episode, I'll just be like, Lauren did a cool thing, and then a not cool thing, and then... Subscribe yeah, exactly. Patreon. Patreon. No, you guys keep selling stuff we don't have. <laughs> Patreon subscribers. We don't have access- t-shirts. We don't have Patreon. <laughs> Patreon subscribers get Hello, access. <laughs> um, Patreon subscribers get access to our deep trauma sessions that we do on like <laughs> Yeah. Isn't that basically what the invitation is? Yeah. So yeah, it's okay. So this is a really great movie at building a mood where you aren't really sure if you should be reacting the way that you're reacting, which is you know kind of. It's kind of the hallmark burn. of cults is that they gaslight gas you and abuse you into, you know, thinking that maybe you are in fact the crazy one. <laughs> and so the movie builds to this crescendo and throughout. So just a couple of like, tid- we're obviously spoiling this movie. So 
you've been warned. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen this movie that came out three years ago yet. <laughs> so this movie has a bunch of weird things. Like uh, Mikhail Hussman's character locks all the doors. There are bars installed on the windows. And this is- He's also very bad at hiding how suspicious he is. <laughs> He's like, hey guys, what's up? I'm just locking this door and I'm taking looking the around ornate key. Also, here's my special $800 million a bottle of wine. Please drink all of it because we you need nothing in this world. You gotta live for today. You might not see tomorrow, man. Oh my God. He makes, them watch, he makes them watch an insane cult movie where somebody literally dies on screen in the video, which is, you know, a pretty fucked up thing to show to your grief group survivor friends and your- like girlfriend's ex-husband whose son died. What's really effective is how it it keeps having these weird off things happen as it's teasing out Will's grief and we're learning what happened. And so you don't know what percentage of it is stuff that's actually weird and how much of it is this man who suffered a deep trauma returning to the place that where he felt felt that trauma for the first time. And the way that those really weird things happen is just so upsetting. The slap in the kitchen or like even the flashback to when she tried to hurt herself. Like mm-hmm. those are those brief bursts of violence that are so upsetting when they show him the video. When, he, when they arrive, Will looks over and, uh, Eden, Eden, their third, their sister wife is yeah. like bottomless looking down the hallway. So you know from the beginning that something's weird, but it's also really good at teasing out that Will might just be suffering a lot. Yeah. Until people literally started dying, I was not sure. No. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really? both a deep investigation well, okay. of grief. They start the movie. Like, I didn't make sure not to read anything. Kayla was like, watch the invitation. I was like, okay, yes, ma'am, whatever you say. I love you. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just going to blindly watch this. I didn't look anything up. And I, so they hit and kill a coyote. And I was like, fucking great. So coyotes represent the trickster or the jokester. And so I knew the whole threat of the movie was going to be a con or like they're going to be lied to wherever they're going because of that. So I knew the whole time that like someone someone was either going to A, kill themselves, B, like blow up the fucking house or Will was they were going to drive Will to kill him. Something like something like that. I just knew the whole time. And because I knew that made the slowness of the movie even more frustrating for me. And I wanted to rip my hair out. I like that reading because I just took from it. The violence and retroactively the fact that it was a mercy killing, which is what the cult is basically doing. Yeah, the coyote mm-hmm. thing is something that I would not have picked up on at all. That is a great observation. <laughs> Lauren's the crafty one. Yeah. Well, well, they didn't get they didn't get out with the deer. Yeah, well, that was actually what I what I thought of too was the deer in Get Out. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. I was like, ooh, that sucks. But I mean, yeah. So when I say that I wasn't sure, like, I mean, it's a horror movie. So, like, I knew that it's bad things. Well, like, I knew bad things were going to happen, but, like, there was part of me, like, a little bit halfway through, I was like, maybe Will's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, God. He does a really good job selling you on how much he is suffering. And he mm-hmm. is. Yeah. It does such a good job making you feel his very painful suffering that even the weird cult stuff that is happening that is very clearly off in some way, you're like, there's some part of you, it's like, it might not be just a cult thing. Yeah, like, maybe he's just being a dick and they're just happy now. Or maybe they are in a cult, but, like, not a murder cult, just like a... Regular cult. A pyramid scheme cult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pyramid uh, scheme was uh, the vibe that I got at first until mm. they watched somebody die, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I also 
besides the, the the horror and tension elements that are really good, just the actual dinner party moments are really well executed. The way that people react, the way that humans will adapt to a situation because they so badly want it to be normal. Mm -hmm. And so they will write off so many things like that was weird, but let's just try to move past this to make this more comfortable for everyone. It reminds me of that bit in the girl, the dragon tattoo where, um, Stellan Skarsgård character says, um, you knew that something bad was going to happen to you, but you didn't want to look impolite. So you came inside anyway. Like, why would you do that? (laughs) And then, you know, the one person who uh, recognized how uncomfortable she felt and tried to leave did not, uh, did not go. So it's, she's like definitely dead. Right. Like he definitely killed her. Okay. It does that really well. The way that they ask. And also it's really fun watching her face in the, like for the first part of the movie, because she looks so uncomfortable. And every (laughs) moment. I made a note of that. I put homegirl in white blazer looks uncomfortable. That's <laughs> what my notes like says. ready to be gone the second <sighs> anything happens. She's like, this is not my scene. <laughs> well, and especially because they're like, all right, Coke and blowjobs. And she's like, nah, <laughs> out. I'm out. <laughs> Which like, good for her. She was smart enough to get out, but she was. I mean, it didn't work. But like- because John Carroll Lynch is a large and terrifying man. Yeah. And like, that this dude is always terrifying and everything he's in because he's just got he can do such a blank face and he's very large yeah well that's another thing too where we get so he tells this whole like awful story oh about how God. he accidentally killed his wife and then will kind of does the same thing later to sister wife she doesn't die that way but like and it's one of those things it was another one of those moments where i was like oh man like is he gonna maybe accept the invitation or whatever because he's now done this like horrible thing or whatever very quickly find out that's nope (laughs) yeah and it's just it's a super slow burn and i wish you hadn't i wish i could have i would have warned you (laughs) if i'd known you were going in like absolutely completely blind but there are just a lot of little things there are a lot of good small music cues that ramp up the tension. I did not notice those the first couple times I watched them. I had to watch it with like a headphones in or like complete silence to notice that there's like this. There's also, I would not be surprised if there was like some inaudible stuff in the score going on just because there were a lot of times where like nothing was really wrong, but something was wrong inside of my heart. Yeah. And this is one of those movies that stuck with me in a way that a lot of like, there are a lot of, when I used to watch horror movies, when I was not as into them, I would have really bad problems with continued visualization and like intrusive thoughts about them and so it was really hard for me to watch them because i would like never sleep for until i like was able to basically forget about the entire movie so like months sometimes and this was one of those movies like we finished watching it and then we pretty much went right to bed which i was not a fan of (laughs) and i woke up in the middle of the night and like i didn't have a nightmare or anything about it but my heart was just racing and i was like i don't under oh fuck we watched that movie that's right (laughs) like that's what's happening (laughs) It's just so creepy. Yeah, I, yeah like I, I, what you said about maybe like thinking that maybe Will was actually the bad guy because Kira, the girlfriend, like she just 
she joins everyone else's side at some point. And she's, and she's like, we, we need to leave. Like, and, and you're all of a sudden, you're like, oh, no. He is completely alone now in this fucking house. He was just trying to like, do her maybe best. it was him. Yeah. But also, he, like, leaves her alone to be like, can I go? I have to go look around at the house. And before I realized, like, the you know, the whole grief thing and the, and the dead son, I was like, you left your fucking girlfriend with these fucking with your weirdos, ex-wife. you asshole. <laughs> like, that's really what God. I can't get over is, like, it's such a weird situation in the first place that – and I, I got into, like, a little bit of a spat with Ben about it because he was like, okay, this is obviously messed up. I would have done this, this, and this. And that's, like, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people spend the entire horror movie – talking about how they totally would have done this or that. These people have also been friends for years. And not it even makes a, a lot of sense they're trying to normalize this And stuff. not even just for this movie, but it's like, you don't know how you would react in that situation. And I'm like, I, in this situation, yeah, you these are your friends. You haven't seen them. You feel bad for having not seen them. You are trying to make nice with your ex-wife and you're trying to deal with your grief and you're trying to make it look good for your new girlfriend. Like, you would not just like be fucking out. You would try to make it work. This is like, I feel like everybody also, in this movie- Back in the house where his child died. Yeah. I feel like everybody in this movie mm-hmm. acts very realistically for a horror movie, which is sometimes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like, I think it's one of like what makes it so good is it's so good on both like the horror genre level, but also like the actual, I joke about how it's just a nice domestic trauma about friends getting back together and working through, through their trauma. But it is, <laughs> it is that too. Like, honestly, if you cut out the last, like the bit where it turns into a full blown horror movie and you just like have it end with them being like, what if we all just went to group therapy? Like it would just be like a really weird, uncomfortable dinner party movie. Yeah. <laughs> but also like good. And there are so many. And like, I think what really turned it for me was when they're talking about Choi and he gets the message. Where where the yeah. fuck is and he Joy? He gets the message on his phone, and then Joy like shows up. I was like, oh my god, I was, I was like, holy fuck, oh my god, we were wrong the whole time. That, <laughs> like that's such a big turn where you think you've gotten the biggest clue that something is wrong, and it's a, and then it's completely undone. Like, mm-hmm. I was so upset. I was like, I'm so sorry, not Tom Hardy. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. I- sorry, I just I was watching it, and especially in the clean shaven scenes, I'm looking, I'm like. He looks like someone who looks. Oh my god, he looks like Tom Hardy. He's a pretty. He's a, he's yeah. a prettier oh, Tom well, Hardy. I mean, is what uh, references were. Like he's that. Like he's got a very Tom Hardy look when he's clean shaven. That's insane. Yeah, he looks so different with that beard. It's, yeah, that's it's so wild. It makes the look the flashback. It, it, I don't know. Like it. It also adds to his trauma the fact that he has such like a tragedy beard. <laughs> he has really let himself go. <laughs> Um, also, can we just talk for a minute about how great and diverse this cast is? There is a, there are two gay people. One of them is Hispanic. There's an Asian couple. There's a black woman. Like she was like, you know what? Fuck studios. I'm just gonna put whoever I want in this movie, and nobody can tell me no. Like I feel like she was literally just like check, 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 check. Like, it also felt like very inspired by dinner party she's gone to, just because yeah. it seems like well, you're in this LA. is an LA dinner party that has <laughs> happened so many times. I know, and like a suicide pact that you didn't agree to. That's like the one weird thing I will say about this cult that I don't understand is that like, I feel like even as bad as cults are, most of them would not make random people like unwittingly a part of their suicide pact. Like you would want them on board, right? Right. That is one thing that, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I know more of this because I read some interviews from her that were specifically about the religious aspect. And that is one thing for all the time and building that goes into like the grief and things like that and some of the other elements of the movie the religious cult part is a little too underplayed just because i don't know that it totally gets into how they think that they are making the decision for other people about what's good for them and that's where like michael 
Mikhail Huisman, uh, <laughs> when he says, no, it's good that you did that. It's a mercy killing. Like that is uh, kind of yeah. the ethos of, of itself mm-hmm. is that they are choosing for other people what is good for them um, because Earth is pain. Earth is full of pain. They are trying to escape pain and they're saving other people from their pain. Yeah, and that's what I think is really interesting. And I made a note about that. Like, like healing from grief through the acceptance of death, but like a literal acceptance of death. Like, we need to die in order to get through our grief. I really, that really fucked with my head for a while. I sat there and was just like, okay, like, there are actually people, though, that like do believe this. So that's not super far fetched. But yeah, what's far fetched is it's very atypical for a cult to be like, all right, everybody. We're just going to die. Welcome to our cult. I thought it was funny because it's like they did seem to want to sell them on the actual cult. But I'm like, maybe you well, should have Because they're up- taking them with them. I know, but it's like maybe you should have set up a couple of dinner parties. Like first dinner party, yeah, we talk about I'm the cult. Thinking. Second dinner party, we talk more about the cult. Second dinner party, maybe some of you accept But the then cult. you'd risk them not coming back. And they seem very invested on not letting anyone go. True. Well, I mean, I guess if you are really because you're crazy, saving them, yeah, I mean, you yeah, want to you, save all of them. If you were really, you really thought that you were saving them, and and that's the thing too, where the movie does such a good job of being this very small, contained, like kind of bottle scenario, and so that last shot where they look out over the hills because, like, Just I remember literally opens up. So, and so here's what happens too: is so you can hear the police sirens, and I'm like thinking a little bit, like I don't know how they call the police, but like I guess maybe somebody heard like the gunshots over it, and I was like so relieved. And then they pan out, and you can see all of the red lanterns across the whole city, and obviously, like, which is set up with a single scene. Yeah, and so like, and obviously the cops and the helicopters and stuff are going all over the city, and you're like, and you realize the scope of this thing and the fact that like it might be a while before they even still get help. <laughs> and it teases that out pretty well too, like throughout the movie where people are just like, oh yeah, my boss does the invitation. A bunch of people in my office do it. Drops little hints that this is actually kind of a massive thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't get the ending because I'm dumb. So I, I Google, I looked, so I looked at Wikipedia and I was like, oh. Um, <laughs> Come on, you're not dumb. Don't say that. <laughs> and then I was, okay, thank, thank, thank you. And then I was like, wait, really? Okay, I guess. Um, I wasn't sold on it. I remember when the movie came out, that was like the people who were negative on it were negative for the, the reasons of they thought it was like a really great exploration of grief and they feel like making an actual murder cult kind of undoes that. Um, and there are others who just don't like the very ending shot. And I don't know, I, I still need to work through, I guess, critically how I think those two things line up, line up the themes of the movie with the literal murder cult of it. But also, I kind of like the having your cake and eating it too thing. I mean, well, I th- I think that grief slowly, like I like I wrote, I'm not, I'm not, I wrote this in a poem, but I kind I did like recently for workshop. I was trying to explore the idea of like I think that grief is autoimmune, and it is essentially the body attacking itself. It's like it's like a slow kill over time. It just from just from people in my life, like who like watching them grieve and watching them grieve for like oh well over a decade. It's like a slow deterioration of self and and i think yeah it's a slow kill and you're kind of slowly killing yourself and especially when you're not grieving i mean there's no right or wrong way to grieve but there are some there are some grief like you can die of a broken heart like there are some things you just can't get over and so i so that so it being ended up being ended up being literal murder made a lot of sense to me in that way and for me i mean i don't that is lovely <laughs> i don't have quite as good of a thought <laughs> 
on it as that. But to me, I think maybe people's problem with that is, again, where we see this unwillingness to let horror movies have other emotions besides fear in them, where to me, I think you absolutely can have a horror movie that does this great deep dive on an exploration of grief and recovery and also have a murder cult. <laughs> like, I think that it's totally fine to have those two things together because I think that horror movies should be at their base, you know, in exploration of our most primal feelings. And I think that grief is one of those very primal feelings. Um, and we explored the ver- the most extreme. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think grief and fear go hand in hand, really, because why do you grieve when somebody dies? It's, you know, a lot like sadness to miss them. Yes. But also for a lot of people, it's fear of the unknown. And so to me, it makes perfect sense that you would work grief into a horror movie in this way. I do like that it also has empathy for Eden at the end. It does a lot of character work for some of for a few characters. Like Sadie, we don't actually get Sadie's story explicitly told the way we do some of the other characters, but I think you get a really good sense of how she's suffering and why she is in the cult. And I think Eden, obviously we get her whole story, but um I think in the final moments is when she actually gets to speak what she's really feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of feels like she was suckered in by a cult in her moment of the obviously tremendous weakness. I guess she doesn't find redemption in the end, but that she finally gets to process her grief in a way that isn't a murder cult. In the end. Yeah. And can I say that Kira is such an MVP, honestly, like once the murder starts and also like it would have been the whole thing. She is in a ter- like a not great situation yeah. and she is being very patient and doing her best. Well, and also I think, I mean, I would not have blamed her at all if she'd been like, fuck this bitch and like stabbed her or something. But like she helps him carry her down the stairs because like I the think most again, patient person. On the yeah. Planet. And I think, again, we all like when you when it comes down to it, you can see that obviously this was a person who was taken advantage of. And that is, I think, another interesting maybe sub level of this film is that it is kind of about, you know, this w- woman who has been betrayed by. I don't know, this like male dominated cult and made vulnerable and made into a pawn for their plans. And it's not until, you know, he's literally dead that she can actually do what she wants to do and process how she wants to process. You know, in a way at its heart, this movie is about the different, like the two different ways and harmful ways that these two people have processed this grief and kind of about them coming to a place a healthier place mm-hmm. yeah no i absolutely agree yeah and i think it's more eden's movie than we realize in that way just because she's re- so you know she's oppressed literally <laughs> like she cannot say what she wants to say i think that's what the ending reveals is that yeah. it is much more eden's movie than it is just will's movie as we thought the whole time mm-hmm. it feels like a very timeless night in many ways like how long yeah is i was trying night? to figure out how long they were there and at a certain point i was like yeah there now. i think it's kind of like part of the fog of grief thing is that yeah. he's not processing time really either mm-hmm. yeah there are a lot of great technical i think the colors in this movie are really nice it's very warm yes. and inviting looking despite being really scary at the same time kusama talked about how people and how even she might have thought uh basically filming inside of a house it's such a small set it'll be pretty easy but it's actually very difficult because you have to have attention to all these details because you're going to have five people in the frame at all times, basically. And you Mm -hmm. have to plan all that stuff out. And I thought thought that was fascinating. And it also justified 
my deep, deep love for dinner party horror movies. <laughs> what a Mr. Dinner Theater. <laughs> I just want to say that this, I, I, my initial like reaction, and I tweeted it like a moron, was like, this movie is my worst nightmare because just the thought of being trapped in an uncomfortable social situation with no cell phone service. Yeah. It is very, this movie is very uncomfortable. Oh my God. It's also a great example of fuck that guy who says you can't write a modern movie because cell phones ruin everything. No cell phone service. Yeah. Be more creative. They forget their phones. Problem solved. Like it's really not that hard. Oh my God. <laughs> I hate that so much. Yeah. The Imitation. Great. Despite a couple of pacing issues and some other stuff, but um, according for some people, the people might disagree. I think they really <laughs> like the pacing. All right, Lauren has pacing issues. Tyler does not. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, I have issues pacing in my own life, but it's entirely different. <laughs> well, here's the thing, and I made a note. I made a note. So we get, we get, we are in the first eleven minutes of this film. I took time notes. Okay, we are like just the foreshadowing is thrown at us like we are with the, with the coyote with like the late with the late with sadie and the light that like her just like coming out of nowhere and being like he he like and then the lady with the white blazer looking super uncomfortable and then the way like then like the new like boyfriend guy like hugged kira really really and how everyone was immediately uncomfortable like okay we're something really bad is gonna happen and then when does the bad stuff happen when there are exactly 20 minutes left of the movie and it's an hour and 40 minutes it's a real jam-packed finale, though. <laughs> and yeah. Yes, it is. I'm such a sucker for this kind of movie and, like, everything that it does, to be to be completely fair. Like, I, I remember this came out shortly after Hook Coherence. I'm like, oh, this is my favorite. Tyler's a big Ty West fan, so that explains everything, really. You are also a Ty West fan. Yes, but I'm just saying. <laughs> it explains liking slow, slow movies. Especially, you stick it just like in a house for a night and I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I'm like, I'm just going to hang out with this person <laughs> in a house all night as terrible things happen. Let's do it. Again, like I said in the very beginning of our segment on this movie, it has critically turned around her career. Um, she's been getting steady work as a TV director. She directed a segment in the all-women horror anthology XX. Um, her segment was Her Only Living Son, which is a future, like an imagining of an alternate future for Rosemary and Rosemary's Baby. Um, it's pretty cool. It's honestly the segment that I liked the most out of that anthology. And it's just... Um, an exploration of motherhood and fear and it's it's really good um, and her oh. next upcoming big project is a crime thriller called Destroyer uh, starring Nicole Kidman Tatiana Maslany and Sebastian Stan um, Nicole Kidman will play an LAPD officer with a dark past <laughs> Tatiana Maslany, Toby Kebbell, Bradley Whitford yeah there's a lot of good people in this 
Um, so I'm Ooh. really excited for this and I really hope that this is the beginning of the true upward trajectory that Karin deserves. <laughs> I really want this to happen. And I think that we're starting to, you know, have the pool widened for more stories. And I think that as much as like, it's never fun to be the person who's ahead of your time and who has to, you know, kind of set the grunt work layer of, you know, going through the ringer. John Carpenter is still bitter about the thing failing. Yes. So, and I think that a great thing about Karen is that she has a tremendous amount of grace about all of it. Every interview she's given, she's like, these are the facts. This is what happened and it happened. And I'm still just going to keep doing what I want to do because I am a smart woman and an artist and I will not be bullied out of my passion. And I think that that is really, you know, the best takeaway that you can have from an artist who's had such a wild career trajectory. And I think that in my opinion, that embodies the spirit of women in horror month <laughs> to yes. knock down a thousand times and still get back up and keep fighting. Uh-huh. I guess we could say that Karin Kusama is the final girl of, uh, she's the final girl <laughs> of, you know, Absolutely. studio stuff. And if you haven't seen any of her other movies, I urge all of you to maybe do a retrospective watch of Jennifer's Body just for fun. Have a couple of drinks, get some friends together. It will be a good time, I hope. The invitation is super spooky. Cannot recommend it enough if you haven't seen it and aren't upset by having the entire thing spoiled by us. Don't, it's a, a lot about the experience. Don't, don't watch Eon Flux. <laughs> don't do that. Sure. I'm really sorry. There is nothing redeemable about it. <laughs> if you want to be really confused and upset about what happened, go ahead. She also did four episodes of Hold and Catch Fire. Yes, that's that was my she got steady TV. Uh, <laughs> don't take an Adderall before you watch the invitation. <laughs> oh my god. Well that explains everything. No. <laughs> yeah, that's well, the worst. Yeah, I took I it. I have after to take it. Worn off for the day. Um, <laughs> I watched it late at night when my uh, my medication was nice and Yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have had a heart attack if I watched that Adderall. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> No. I was just like screaming. Don't take Adderall unless you have a prescription for it. The official stance of LTRFI pod. <laughs> yes, 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 children. Prescription <laughs> only. Thank you. So, um, watch Jennifer's body with like a pack of badass women. Yes. Round up your girl gang. Have like a PBR. Yeah. I would say some tequila shots would be good for that too. Honestly, oh my, take a shot every time there's Diablo Cody piggybacking off Juno in the dialogue. <laughs> take a shot. Cross Destroy out. Destroy your liver. Cross out I Diablo Cody's choice. dialogue. Sometimes you're all just lying, <laughs> Jello. Jello, every one of you. But yes. So, um. Thank you so much for listening. I was really excited to put this episode together and to kind of do something, you know, a little bit more comprehensive than we usually do. Thank you to Tyler and Lauren for going along with all of my ideas for this month. I'm kind of the shit. <laughs> I thought one more. <laughs> oh, that's oh, it's from Jennifer's body. Yes. I thought you were just saying that about yourself. <laughs> well, also, yes. And I was like, okay. I mean, it's Women in Horror Month, but sure, Tyler, no, why I'm not? a kicker, Kayla. <laughs> oh, uh, okay, so we will be back next week with... Our next, I think it'll probably technically come out after February is over. But I will try my it's, best. That's cool. Our next Women in Horror Month is going to be about another incredibly talented, wonderful director, um, Anna Biller. And we're going to be talking about The Love Witch. And it's going to be cool. 
If you would like to get a hold of us, you can reach out to us on Twitter at LTRFIPod. If you have long form messages that need to be sent to us for some reason, you can email us at LTRFIPod. I like how you every time you <laughs> neg someone for wanting to email, like if I'm you want to email them. us, I guess. I'm not saying I just nobody ever does. So Kayla, we have lots of emails from our thousands of listeners. <laughs> If you want to email us, that's totally fine. I'm not trying to nag you. So it's ltrfipod at gmail.com. Uh, you can check out our website with episodes and gifts sometimes and some other cool stuff. Uh, it's ltrfi.com. Oh, and and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review because yes. there, there's like a drunk one from me on there and that's not professional. Please review us on iTunes. I want to read iTunes reviews so bad. Reading reviews is my weirdest secret guilty pleasure and if it was on my own podcast, I think I would truly ascend. <laughs> I think we should just read reviews for other podcasts instead yes. of ours. Just every time. Uh, no, I love reading like Google reviews of restaurants and stuff. I don't know. That's this is so off topic. All right. I am- Kevin from Cincinnati says, 99% Invisible is the best podcast. I listen to it every night as I'm making my chicken parmesan. I love Snap Judgment. All right. Uh, anyway, thank you again so much for listening as we have gone through this new and exciting experience. Are there any other bits we want to do? Gone wildly off the tracks many times. Until next time, I'm not going to say anything negative. I'm just going to say that women are great. And I hope that women continue to kick ass in the horror genre. to go up there and I don't want her to do that. My favorite murder capitalizes on cat sounds in the background. <laughs> we should start doing that. She's trying to jump up on top of the bookshelf. She's a sound cat. They, yeah. they, they close every episode with the cat meowing. Sound cat Phoebe. Lauren, how are you? I'm sorry. I feel like I did not ask you that question. No, I asked Lauren how she okay. was. And then I like immediately closed out of and then interrupted her just <laughs> Oh yeah, I think you asked me how I was and then I didn't I got like a word uh, a word in and then I don't remember anything else. Whoa, whoa. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. I don't know, even best. I'm good. <laughs> Nah, you're stuck Tyler, with me. you have to talk. I don't know. <laughs> Woman in Horror Month and Tyler. Next month, I'm going <laughs> to. Next month, next year, I'm yeah. going to prepare more. And I am, no offense to you, but I am going to have my Women Only Women in Horror Month episode next year. It's going to happen. <laughs> so I just forgot how to end a podcast.